Well, good morning and uh, welcome to our audience to UK column. We've got another interesting, I'm going to say political interview, but that's with a very small p as uh, we'll find out in a minute. But I'm delighted to be joined today by Jonathan Tilt, who is the founder and uh, coordinator of the Vote Freedom Project. And I find this a very interesting concept. So I'm going to say straight away, Jonathan, welcome to UK Column. I'm glad we finally made it. Thanks very much for having me on, Brian. And yes, yeah, no, I'm delighted to be here to discuss the Vote Freedom Project with you. Yeah. To me, you're quite an interest. Well, you're a very interesting man. You've got a background in acup acupuncture, having trouble with that one, and uh, accountancy, which seems to me a very interesting com combination. Tell us how you got from that into politics. I'm in my mid-50s, my career's sort of been split in half, really. I did sort of 15 years as a chartered accountant, mostly working in the further education sector. And for the last sort of 12, 13 years, I've, uh, I've run my own acupuncture business in, in Barnsley. Um, I don't really regard myself as being in, in politics and certainly not into politics. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm a libertarian. I believe that large centralised government is an evil. Uh, and um, that many of the things that were going on pre-2020 um, were corrupt and um, I didn't want any part of, particularly around monetary debasement with my accountancy background and um, the way the pharmaceutical industry operates with my sort of acupuncture background. So those those two strands I was uh, alive, aware and awake to, um, but I wasn't really doing anything because it wasn't, you know, there weren't mandatory flu vaccines and things like that. Nothing was being imposed upon me. I could run my own little acupuncture business and look after my kids and go on holiday where I wanted. So I didn't really feel any need to get involved in resisting um, something that I recognised as, you know, ultimately potentially tyrannical, but it wasn't actually there yet. Uh, 2020 came along and uh, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a different situation, isn't it? Um, I quickly you know, saw it, you know, saw COVID as, as the scam and the fraud that it is, um, connected into the various sort of underground, underground anti-lockdown groups that were forming in West Yorkshire, where I live, um, and just sort of started to say, we need to try and use the political, the political angle, the political vehicle a little bit as, as one front in this battle, really, not because it's the ultimate solution or because there's anything great about politics, because having been involved in it for three years, I can tell you there's not very much great about it. Um, but I just thought that, that, you know, standing in local council elections particularly was something we could do to make a statement. Um, to cut a long story short, I set up a political party, the Freedom Alliance Political Party, um, and we had 250 or so candidates over the course of two years, fought um, seven or eight parliamentary by-elections. Never got that many votes, um, but, you know, we're energised and got quite a lot of people on board. Two things became apparent to me during that journey, though. Uh, one, the notion of running a political party um, is completely at odds with everything else we're trying to do in the freedom movement. Everything else is about being decentralised, distributed, disaggregated, getting people to stand on their own two feet in their communities. So the notion of having a, a top-down, centralised political party structure, um, which the Election Acts almost inevitably force parties into with leaders and deputy leaders and chairs and things like that, um, that didn't fit very well with the freedom movement and there was a lot of resistance in the freedom movement to it. Um, the other thing that was blindingly obvious after running a few campaigns was that the public at large, not just the um, freedom-loving public, but the public at large, are really hostile and sick of political parties. Um, they're not sick of politics. They're quite happy to discuss the issues, but they are sick of parties because they, rep they recognise that they are captured and corrupted. Um, and, you know, even the small ones that aren't captured and corrupted yet have, will become so if they um, if they get any sort of traction or size. Um, so I, I came to the conclusion that as a, as a vehicle for um, opposing the you know, emerging tyranny, uh, political parties weren't the right vehicle. So what we've done with Vote Freedom is, is set up um, basically a loose collective of independent candidates. It's not, it's not any independent. You have to sign up to our eight principles, which are you know, sort of freedom-loving and libertarian-type principles, which are on the front page of the website. Um, but anybody who supports those principles and that aligns themselves with those principles, we will support and resource them to stand as an independent candidate. So in essence, for, for me, you're, you're getting all the best bits of being in a party. You're getting your hand held. You get, I mean, we, we're providing much, much better resources on our website than most of the political parties, even the large political parties provide, um, because we're, you know, we're totally focused on that. We're totally focused on, on resourcing candidates. We're not you know, running our own little um, petty party fiefdom, which is what the, um, the, the 
political parties get engaged in. So, yeah, um, we, we think you'll do better. You'll get more votes as an independent. There's plenty of statistical evidence to back that up. Um, but we want to make sure that these councils particularly, um, you know, are, are full of libertarian independence, basically. And we see the Vote Freedom Project um, as a mechanism, a vehicle for trying to achieve that. We're not, you know, you're not our candidates. We're not leading you. We're not directing you. There's no central manifesto. Um, you sign up to the eight principles. That, that That's it. Um, but we think, you know, with these council elections coming up, we, we have got to start to get people elected. Um, you know, coming, you know, I've stood in my own ward as a Freedom Alliance candidate, come last twice with 100 votes. Um, that's not going to get us anywhere. We've got to get people onto these councils and stop the 15-minute city agenda and whatever is coming next, because we, you know, we just don't know what's coming next. Um, so that's what Vote Freedom is. It's been set up by myself and um, Cass McBean, the, the founder of the, the PHA People's Health Alliance. Uh, there's a lot of other people, a lot of ex-freedom alliance people coming on board to help us um, run and coordinate it. But it's not a political party. Um, you, you, you stand as an independent. It's your name and independent next to it um, on the ballot paper. But we'll hold your hand and support you and resource you. Okay. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for that very concise and comprehensive, actually, uh, run through. You, you did both there. Um, I'm, I'm very interested with the concept because... As I mentioned to you on the on the phone a few days ago, I got to the point where having been a little bit active myself many years ago, I was involved in uh, UKIP. I did get out canvassing. I did experience all the things of putting out leaflets and holding uh, little meetings in order to get people um, elected. And I learned a huge amount from it. So I think one of the things I'd say to the audience is that this is an important part of learning is to actually get out there and try it yourself and engage with the uh, engage with the community because you you do learn some amazing things and people are willing to talk about the issues. But of course, I'd later discovered that, of course, um, UKIP suffered from infighting, as we've seen in a lot of other parties. And I, I got interested in the idea that perhaps the independent was the was the way to go um, and uh, I've said to a, to a couple of people I've talked to who, who are coming in from the party direction I hope if you get enough people elected the first thing you'll do is ban political parties on the basis that it seems to me that it's the party structure that's of, often causes the problem. So I did that in a light-hearted way but I respect anybody who's standing up to uh, make an effort to get themselves or, or others elected at local or national level because we do need to challenge the system. So I think your concept here is very interesting and I, I think you've used a little expression which is hand-holding and this is an important thing because for a lot of people to decide that they're going to stand even as a local candidate they can find it quite a daunting task. So what, what sort of things can you do to, um, well, help encourage, but also to support people who come forward to be a candidate for you? Yeah, I mean, it is daunting. The first time I did it, it, it was daunting, and I do understand and get that, and um, none of us really want to be doing this, is, is the bottom line. Um, essentially, I mean, what we're doing at the minute is helping people with nomination forms. Forms have to be um, completed by Tuesday. We, we're supporting around 300 candidates, I think, at the minute. Um, so that's that's the first practical piece of help we provide. Um, and then after that, it's you know it's help with leafleting and helping help with signposting the fact that you're standing and pointing people towards you. I mean, our website is getting getting a lot of traffic now, so we'll put the candidates up and say if you want to go and leaflet with someone, um, that this is your nearest this is your nearest candidate. Um, beyond that, it's an awful lot. It's a, it's a lot of talking, a lot of phone calls, a lot of chatting locally um, here in Kirklees and, and Barnsley. I meet up with people and, and just reassuring them that, particularly at council level, and you know, even at parliamentary level, because I've, I've stood in the parliamentary by election, it isn't that bad. You're not going to have the media camped on your front lawn, um, you know, going back through sort of 10 years worth of Facebook posts and stuff like this. Um, their, their approach to the freedom movement, in my experience, is, is by and large to try and ignore us as much as possible and give us the absolute bare minimum of coverage, which is why the likes of UK column are absolutely so essential, because it's, you know, it's, uh, it's the only oxygen of publicity that, that, that we get from anywhere. Um, so yeah, an awful lot, you know, my, my life at the minute is when I'm you know, Fitting a little bit of acupuncture around the sides, but it's it's on the phone to candidates, talking them through the nomination process, 
uh, and just encouraging them. I don't, you know, I don't um, force anybody to be a candidate, but, you know, I do persuade them. I do, and most of that persuasion is around, it's not that bad, your profile isn't going to be that you know, horrendous, particularly standing as an independent, because it's, um, it sounds relatively, you know, it, it, uncontroversial. You're just standing in your community for the benefit of your community. Yeah. Um, but yes, to go back to your original point on terms of, um, political parties, I, 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 having run one for three years now, I'm absolutely and firmly of the belief they should be abolished. Uh, and the first place they should be abolished is at local council level. Local, you know, political, you should not be able to stand for election as a member of a political party uh, for your local council. The council should be local people representing their ward and putting uh, the interests of their electors um, first above anything else. Um, and that doesn't happen in the party system. You get this direction from this top-down direction from within the borough and, and from London. Um, and you're seeing that in, in the major parties now in terms of candidate selection. Um, so we've got to get away from that. And the only way for me to, to do that is, um, you know, is certainly at local council level, is to abolish parties and then ultimately at parliamentary level as well. As you're talking there, what came into my head, I, I... I think I've said this to a couple of the other people that I've interviewed, but I, I can remember my father talking to me about local politics. He, he, was, he, he was very interested in politics, but he didn't get involved in it. Um, but um, he said to me, well, of course, many years ago, we didn't have the involvement of the political parties in local politics. And this is something I've criticise myself here, I should have got into this to actually have a look because there was obviously a change at some point which brought um, national politics, the big political parties, into local politics. And I'm not sure when that actually happened, but previously it would appear that if you stood as a town councillor, for example, you were standing as, a, as an individual and you were elected on the basis of, of what you had to say and whether you were a good person deemed suitable to serve. So when, it's an interesting point, when did this political control come into local councils? I don't know whether you know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know an answer to that. What I do know is I think it's turning around. I think the ship is starting to turn around. Um, there's 19,000 councillors across England, Scotland and Wales. And 2,600, I think, of them are independents now. And the bulk were elected as independents. You get a few people leave Tory and Labour and become independents, but the bulk of those 2,600 were, were elected as independents. Um, there's councils across the country where independents are grouping together loosely to form the opposition or to, you know, um, to have significant influence on what's going on. Uh, and I think that number of 2,600 will increase significantly this time after these elections. I think there's a, a real appetite for, for moving away from party politics, particularly at a local level. Um, our challenge is to make sure that you know, um, those independents are freedom-loving libertarian independents, because not all of those 2,600 are. Um, you know, I have examples of some that are, uh, you know, were very much signed up to the COVID narrative and the, the, the state tyranny that took place in uh, over the last three years. So, so my job, I, I see, is, you know, is, is using the appetite that is there for independence um, to get the right sort of independent elected. That makes complete sense to me. Uh, you, you've mentioned the key points um, which you like people to agree to. Um, there's eight of them. I've got them on a sheet in front of me. What I'd like to do is just gently read through those and, and get you to discuss them a bit. Uh, are you happy with that? Yes, absolutely happy with that. Yes, I mean it's it's, it's a group effort. They're not just it's not just me that's written them on the back of the envelope, but this. Um, but yes, I'm more than happy to, to to work through those eight points as they're okay. Let, we stand. Let's get my specs on. So we've we've got these eight points. They're very simple. They're very clear. The first one is freedom of movement within a nation state with secure borders. Number two is total bodily autonomy for all people no medical or any other form of discrimination. Number three, freedom of speech. Number four, freedom of information, scientific, medical and other research, which is open, accessible and not corrupted by vested interests. Number five, money that is protected from debasement. Six, truth, justice and upholding constitutional rights and freedoms. Seven, localism, not globalism, and number eight, government that is small, decentralised and genuinely accountable to the people. So 
I think these are three, uh, sorry, I think these are eight very interesting points. Um, number one then, on freedom of movement within a nation state with secure borders. Um, I'm going to say, why, why did you end up with this as number one? They're not order of priority at all. Okay. Just, um, I'm not entirely sure what order they're in. The, the life, but no, there's no, all eight carry equal weight. They're not, uh, I mean, personally, some, some are more important to me than others. I mean, particularly um, non-debasable currencies is, would be my number one in the list. But um, no, from the perspective of the Vote Freedom Project, they're all eight are equal. I can see that... Um, quite rightly, um, some of the events under COVID and lockdown have influenced um, uh, what you've identified here, as, uh, identified here as a key point. So when, when you're talking about total body, bodily autonomy, um, this is, in, in a way, this is incredible because 10 years ago, would we, would we have been putting that on a list? But now we feel we need to put it on a list because it seems that we are very, very close to the state deciding to do what it wants with our own bodies. Yeah, I totally agree. And it, yeah, it is remarkable that we're having to you know, make a political stand on that. But, um, you know, we, we resisted um, the, you know, the move towards mandatory vaccination or effectively mandatory vaccination with the um, vaccine passes. And I'm, you know, I'm incredibly proud of being one of the sort of 15 percent or whatever that refused to have any vaccinations. Um, not that they even are vaccinations. Um, so yeah, we've, we've resisted that, but they're coming back for more. The pandemic treaty is, you know, is in the background to, to be signed soon, and that will effectively you know, end national sovereignty over medical issues uh, and, and it, it introduce vaccine passes in the future. I mean, that clearly was the model with COVID. They were going for the, you know, the fake virus to run with the fake vaccine um, to introduce digital ID, to have social credit and programmable money on the back of it. I mean, that, that that's, I can't see any other explanation for what they were trying to do. Uh, yes. And we stopped them halfway through that process with a, a lot of us resisting and saying, no, it's, it's my body, my choice. Um, so for us as a movement, and you know, I wasn't involved in politics before um, COVID came along, um, that, 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 that's fundamental bodily, bodily autonomy for me. It's, um, you know, it, it is my body, my choice. However, uh, ir ir irrational or irresponsible decisions I make about my body, that's that's the fundamental human right. Yeah, that, that's a powerful point. And of course, your other point here, well, I'm going to say two of them. You've got freedom of speech. If we don't have freedom of speech, we can't speak out on is any issue which is going to affect us, whether it's control over our body or control over borders or the money supply. So freedom of speech just stands on its own. But together with that, you've got point four, which was the freedom of information. And you're talking about scientific, medical and other research. And this is another issue which is, has really come to the fore, isn't it? Because if the public or indeed um, uh, independent scientists are, are not allowed to question government issued statistics or data or scientific papers um, we, we're not in control of our own destiny no absolutely not and i think you're seeing that most most alarmingly now in terms of the you know the, the climate debate where you know clearly only one side um, you know of the debate gets any sort of mainstream um, coverage and that side is then you know taken as settled science or whatever the phrase is i mean it's, it's absurd there is there's no public debate around these issues and you know, the, the key i mean you know a lot of this is a little bit of a wish list and if you can ask me how we actually do it that's that's another issue but uh, on this i think we we have got to uh, deconstruct the sort of mainstream media uh, and i think the way you do that quite uh, there's a way to do that which is relatively easily which is to stop public advertising in I mean, the newspapers, I think, as you've covered on UK Column, were all propped up by um, COVID-related um, advertising as their circulation figures collapsed in the spring of 2020. And I think you just you just ban the government from advertising in any form. Uh, and that, that will lead, I suspect, to a collapse of the mainstream media, which will mean that, you know, um, channels like this and others and others on the other side, because the debate has to, you know, um, I, I mean, I don't believe in climate alarmism, but I'm happy to hear hear the views of those that do believe in climate alarmism. So there have to be a, a multitude uh, of channels and, you know, a disaggregated approach. We don't just get our news from the BBC and the Times and the Guardian or whatever. And I think the way you do that is, you know, on the BBC front to end the licence fee, obviously. Um, but with the rest of it, you stop, you stop the public sector advertising. Well, I think we just mentioned The Guardian because The Guardian was benefiting from public um, job adverts for many, many years before they had the um, cash cow of COVID um, reports from the government. Um, 
truth, justice, upholding constitutional rights and freedoms. Really, that encapsulates what, what, we've, what we've just discussed. But are there any particular uh, matters in relation to the, to the Constitution and, uh, and our fundamental rights under that Constitution? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a constitutional expert. I'm, you know, I'm, 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 as you know, engaged in the debate around what the coronation oath might, might say or not say. Um, I think, you know, those, those, those fundamental rights are covered by the other points, the freedom of speech, the body autonomy. Uh, truth and justice is an interesting um, issue, I think, for the freedom movement. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people, clearly was criminal behaviour at whatever level took place in 2020 and 2021. I mean, we can get into the, you know, the care of deaths and things like that if, if you want to. But I mean, I, I think, I feel that people have to be held accountable for that criminal behaviour. I'm not necessarily sure you need to do it through a sort of massive, you know, new truth commission or anything like that. I think you know, there's enough criminal law and enough common law in place to, to hold the individuals to account who um, committed criminal acts, in my, in my view, during 2020, and there should be a full investigation into that. So yes, whilst I'm always far more interested in moving on, looking at the future, trying to work out how we're not going to get back into the situation that we had in 2020, uh, I do think that has to be a holding to account of those that played a prominent role in that. Yeah, okay. And... Um... Localism, not globalism. Um, I, th I think more and more people are sensing that they would feel more comfortable if they could get on with their lives at a local level. But on the on the globe, the global issue, what would you, what are you seeing that causes you um, to say that we've got? I'm trying not to put words in your mouth. Uh, what what are you seeing that says we've got to be more local? than getting involved in the globalism. What is the globalism you're seeing? There's two aspects to this economics and politics for me. I think politics, uh, big central governments that, uh, I mean, local government is effectively controlled by central government now because it gets 70% or whatever of its cash from central government. So it will clearly do whatever the, its paymasters in London tell it to do. Cent large central governments are too open to capture and control by global corporations. And I think, you know, we, we're really now seeing that, you know, governments and the pharmaceutical industry and, and the banks are, you know, effectively one and the same thing. They've, they've really merged into each other. And, and I think the antidote to that is to have, you know, is, is to have small governments. I mean, I'm not, a, you know, I, I'm not of the view that we should all go off and live as hermits. And, and you know, I, am, I do take a collectivist approach that we should organise together. But I think we do that very locally to provide essential services. And we fund those essential services locally. We don't you know, pay money to London and then beg for London to give us the money back uh, because London is too easily captured and influenced, again, through the party political system. I think more interestingly, at an economic level, um, we're vulnerable. If we, if we get all our essential food and supplies from abroad, which we do now, then that can very easily be disrupted and cut off, um, you know, for sinister reasons or for not sinister reasons. I, you know, I think we have got to get back to you know, sourcing and growing food, particularly locally. Um, and, you know, we're, we're on a fertile, fertile island surrounded by a fish full of sea. It's uh, a sea full of fish, sorry. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be too difficult to do that. Um, so, yeah, we've got to source essential resources more locally, and we can do that, I believe. Uh, politically, um, you know, 400 um, strong independent local councils across England is far better defence to capture and control by globalist interests than, than one big central government. Well, I have to say, I, I always feel sad when I drive around the country now and I look out over countryside and then I see the acres covered up by the... Uh, photos uh, by the um, photo um, electric cells I'm forgetting the terminology for yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. the, the for, solar power yes yeah, yeah solar panels that's a better way of putting it yeah seeing everything covered in solar panels and um, I'm thinking no we should be there should be there should be livestock there or we should be farming that area and uh, I, I feel this more and more because you can see this stuff growing out over the countryside. Um, yeah, OK. And um, uh, uh, yes, government that's small and decentralised, this, this really is, is what? Just saying if we made the decisions at local council level or really we could go from parish up to district council, local council level, we would have the focus in the right place before we started to form government policies. Is that roughly where you're coming from? 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, with accountable independent councillors, um, uh, those councils would provide the services that, that people want. I mean, here, you know, here in Kirklees, I'm just you know, uh, trawling through the Kirklees zero carbon plan to, to produce my election leaflets. And it's, you know, it's full of how they're going to influence public behaviour. They're going to get in the schools and provide transport training. They're going to have commissions of students to look into. And that's what they're spending money on. They're not spending money on you know, uh, the roads that's in places that are like a slalom course to avoid the potholes or, the, you know, the fly tipping that's going on everywhere. The, the issues that really affect people's lives uh, are not being resourced because the council always pleads poverty, but it's got plenty of money to fund these the, these student climate commissions uh, and the rest of it, and some fairly obscene salaries within local government officers, not not councillors, but officers. So I think, you know, the way to tackle all of that and get these councils to, to work for the people is, is to have independent From my own knowledge of uh, trying to do things over many years, certainly here here in Plymouth, I came to understand that life inside the city council was not necessarily very pleasant for either elected members or officers. Um, I I would say that it became very clear that there was a very uh, high level control over everything that happened in the council and certainly the members particularly via the cabinet system, were controlled very tightly that they were going to stay online with the political party, political decisions. Um, But even for for officers, the overall environment could be quite hostile. Have you been able to um, provide your candidates with some understanding about the environments they will go into? You are elected as a new Uh, vote freedom candidate and you end up going into your local council and for somebody who's got no political experience I can imagine this can be quite a tough environment to go in I don't think Plymouth's any different from other councils across the the country I think most of them have got this pretty um, heavy style of management but are you as as an organization able to give your candidates a little bit of coaching for what they are going to go go into yes to some extent i mean we're, we're you know we're there to support and encourage i mean one thing we have been doing uh, since we set up vote freedom is connecting with quite a lot of uh, existing independent councillors who are you know uh, leaning our way they're not uh, all um, fully um, signed up to those eight principles but they, they, you know, they do get what we're trying to do and had some very interesting discussions with with them and you know the, the, particularly if you can start to get two councillors into a council you have got the opportunity to disrupt things through bringing motions through shining you know shining sunlight and getting some transparency transparency on, on what's going on and also getting some media attention because um, the media will will give you more the local media will be more interested in you once you've got that um, tag, tag of councillor in front of your name. Um, so you know, they're quite optimistic. The, the, the existing independent councillors we talk to are very optimistic about what can be done. Um, and you know, we just need to get more people in there to achieve it. Um, but you're right, I mean, the introduction of the cabinet system to um, uh, to, 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 to local government, by I think it was by the Blair, the Blair government, wasn't it? it? Was you know sort of the, the final death knell for local democracy, wasn't it? Because it yes. is, people just have to adhere to to whatever the leader and the cabinet say if they're part of the party system. And there are there are people that get elected as part of the party system and then the, you know recognise the corruption and, and move outside of it and become independents. Um, and yeah, for officers, yes, I, I I fully get that. I mean, you know. Um, I've had endless phone calls from people over the last three years when we were running Freedom Lines, etc. People saying they wanted to help, um, but they just couldn't because they would they would lose their jobs if they were even you know seen liking our Facebook posts and things like that. Um, and it's that that is the level of control. And I get that, and, and and the control mechanism is to make people dependent on their salaries to get you to you know to inflate house prices, so you have to have a big mortgage, so you've got to service the debt each month, and you have to have the salary to service the debt, and that that's the existing control mechanism, and it worked during COVID because um, the people that you know led the resistance. Um, to use that term loosely, um, we're by and large self-employed. I mean, all the people I know were you know pretty much retired or self-employed. The people that were employed by local government, central government, the NHS, large corporations, whilst they might privately and secretly you know contact you and say you, that they really supported you, and they might sometimes donate money, um, they they couldn't be publicly associated because they they literally would have lost their jobs in some cases. Yeah. Um, and that, that's the control mechanism we're fighting against. So yes, it will be difficult. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. Um, 
but then most of what we've done over the last three years hasn't been easy and comfortable, has it? So um, we, we are becoming a bit more hardened, I think. I think uh, myself and the people I, I know well and work in the freedom movement with um, you know, are in a different place to where we were two and a half years ago. Yeah. And uh, well, the key, key point there, strength in numbers, it's, it's one thing to be an isolated independent in a, elected into a council. But if, you're, if there's two of you or three of you, there's definitely strength in numbers. So even small numbers can make a big difference inside a system because you can bounce ideas off each other and give each other uh, support when it's needed. The thing you, you do is provide a, a focal point for others to defect to from the main parties. Because, I mean, I know as a fact there are Labour and Tory councillors um, that fully get this and fully agree with us, but again, can't step outside of, you know, they, they haven't got the courage yet um, because they can't see anything to step to, to step outside that, that matrix. I mean, I, I won't say where it was to, to, to protect the guy, but um, I, I was at a, a count in the middle of the night um, someplace where we were getting a small number of votes, as we usually do. Um, the deputy leader of the council, a Labour deputy leader of the council, came up to me and said, said in my ear, I agree entirely with everything you people are saying. Well, um, so you know um, that 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 is there. There are there are Labour and Tory councillors who are ready to make a move, but they need something to move to. Um, so getting a couple of independents, pro freedom independents, on you know elected in place might mean that you suddenly pull across three or four from the main parties. Yes, this is an extremely good point. Last few days, or a few days ago, I, I mentioned on camera that um, I'd had a little conversation with somebody in a local council. And they, they, first of all, they told me as a local councillor, they were pretty devastated by the number of people around them who'd suffered adverse va vaccine reactions. And there's been, they had uh, this particular individual had experienced two, two deaths. And when I asked, what about other councillors? They immediately said, yes, there are many other councillors who are all talking about the same thing, that they've got relatives or friends who've suffered adverse reactions. And there's also they've lost people. People have died. And I, I then said, and, you know, how do they feel about this? Are they speaking out? And the response I got was that, no, it was like there was a lid being kept on everybody. So. So people within the council, and I believe I'm correct in saying also cross-party, which is always a significant thing, were acknowledging that something was badly wrong over the vaccine, the vaccines and the vaccine policy, but there was still enough fear of their own system to prevent them from speaking out. So I, I'm going to echo back to you and say I can imagine that if, if you had a few independents in the in the council who were demonstrating they were not frightened to speak out, you could well get people moving across to join you, which would be a very powerful thing. Absolutely, and I, yeah, I'm very confident in, in places that will happen, um, which is why we need to get those the, those two or three into some of these councils. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I've just illustrated one conversation, but I, I know I know there's people ready to defect from the mainstream parties. Um, and it's, you know, lifting that lid off is, is, is our job, really, isn't it? That's what we're here to do. You mentioned money, and uh, I, th I think this is a good point for our audience, that, of course, when it comes down to how a council acts, uh, money is a, is a key driver. Now, I'm not talking about salaries in this instance. I'm talking about uh, budgetary sums which enable them to do everything, whether it's repair the roads or run the swimming pools. And of course, those, those sums of money come from central government grants. So we've immediately got a layer of fear that if the council doesn't do the right thing, it can be cut off from some of the, well, some of the centralized funding is, um, is set in stone. So it's not easy for the government to stop that. But there are many other pots of money that the, the centralised government can make decisions. Well, we're not going to give it to Plymouth, we'll give it to Bristol instead. And this enables central government to carry out a divide and rule policy to control local councils. So it, it seems to me that getting to grips with the budgets inside councils must be a key area for your candidates to focus on. 
Yes, absolutely. We're working within that mechanism, aren't we? I mean, the money comes from us initially. So we pay our income tax and our VAT locally. It gets sent to London and then the councils have to behave to get it back from London. So a far better model, I think, would be to tax people locally and to give it to the local council and cut out the, uh, the centralised control. But obviously, that's they're not going to do that because that's, that, as you illustrated, that's the system of control. You, you, know, you adhere to the narrative, you play by the rules uh, and you'll get your, you know, the additional discretionary grants uh, and you know even the even the block funding i mean the mechanism for you know how that's calculated can be changed um through legislation to, you know, to the detriment types of council can't it so yeah i mean these councils yeah um, in, in places they are short of money um and you know um they're desperate to adhere to the agenda it's it's all you know it's much the same as the individuals who work for the council having to adhere to the agenda because they will lose their salaries it's a centralized control mechanism that's quite yeah. subtle. It's you know I don't imagine any of this stuff's written down anywhere, but it's fully understood by the individuals. Um, you do as you're told, or um, you're in trouble. Of course, something else that I witnessed uh, was the power when it was in place, the power of the pots of EU funding. Uh, yeah. So when, for example, we had the regeneration, the the urban regeneration grants that were coming through from uh, European budgets. Uh, you could see the attention of local councils immediately switch to the European Union. So this, this was a very clever thing. The money was dangled by the European Union. All of the council's attention went to the European Union because they were desperate to see whether they could uh, be awarded one of the funding pots. But as they did that, of course, you could see cent even centralised government control waning. Now we've supposedly come out of the EU to some extent at least but I, I think the fact that the EU has become an unstable subject for, for councils means that at least we've now got some focus back on to this country and um, the European funding the pull of it has drifted off to one side so at least we know what we're dealing with, with now we've got to look at the relationship with central government control over local council funding yeah i entirely agree with you again brian it's yeah i mean it's um we, we've got to get, get get to a model where councils are funded locally by the people that they serve because that's how you get that's how you enforce the accountability and um, so you've got to take the central you know the central player out of the equation um be that central government or european government or the united nations or whatever's coming next it's the um, world health organization you've got local people pay local taxes to fund local services and those local services are you know are defined and essential um government local government doesn't drift into you know not, you know nudge unit territory trying to manipulate public opinion or anything like that it just provides essential services um, in accordance with you know, which people keep, keep control of over you know, through their voting um, intentions. If they don't like the, the current setup, they vote for somebody else. That seems to make sense to me. On your, your, your candidates that you got, are you, are you managing to get a, um, a good spread of people from different backgrounds, different colours, uh, different beliefs? How, how, is, how is diversity going for, for you at the moment as recruiting? The freedom movement for me has, has been heavily concentrated in the sort of 45 to 65 um, age age group, mm -hmm. that demographic. And so that, that is definitely reflected in our candidates. Uh, and as I mentioned before, you know, the self-employed, um, I think because they feel freer to speak their minds, have, have played more of a prominent role than, than the employed. And that will also be reflected in our candidates. Um, you know, I mean, it's the phrase our candidates doesn't, we're not a political party. It doesn't really work in the same way that, I mean, I've had people, you can go on our website, you can have never stood for council before and there's video tutorials and sort of crib sheets to take you through how to do it. And I've had people emailing in saying, we've, we've followed your links, we've done what you said on the website and I've put my nomination forms in today. Uh, and that's brilliant because I haven't had any involvement in that. And they, they, they do agree to the eight principles, but beyond that, um, you know, they're doing it themselves. So I, I don't know those individuals. I can't tell you what colour they are or, or what age they are. And that's when we set Vote Freedom up, having had the experience of running a sort of tightly controlled political party. That's how we wanted it. We wanted to push the resources out to people so they could just do it themselves. Uh, and a lot of people are doing that. Um, but then there are candidates I know. I mean, locally, I'm, I'm sort of um, coordinating candidates in, in, in Barnsley and... Um, Huddersfield and, and Rochdale as well. So it's, you know, I do know those individuals and they by and large would fit the sort of demographics that we've been talking about 
about before, which um, you know the freedom movement does have a certain demographic. It's you know there aren't that many people under forty heavily involved, um, and you know it probably is concentrated you know more in the white population. If I've got this right, then you get candidates elected. Um, we're going to talk local elections at the moment. That's what's coming up. Um, they get into their council, and then within your within the the uh, gentle guidelines of your your eight uh, your eight points, those elected people are going to take initiatives as they see fit within their own council. Not directing, controlling them. There's no manifesto. There's no party line. Um, obviously, you know, uh, we're there to support and, and facilitate. I, I, I'm not a councillor. I've stood for council elections uh, four times now, but I'm not, you know, so I, I can't personally tell you what it is like to be a councillor and, and, you know, exact techniques you should use. Um, but we are building those connections quite rapidly with independent councillors that have, have been elected and, you know, in some cases have done it for, you know, for decades. Um, so that, that that resource will be there to help people on, you know, how to, how to manage the process and um, how to, you know, best do it and to best support freedom at a local level. As we move forward to election, if we're allowed to have another election, of course, mm. um, you, you, you'd have the same process for candidates who were going to stand yeah, no, absolutely. Candidate. I mean, we're we're, um, um, we're we're building up a list of um, general election candidates, provisional general election candidates, uh, which is around thirty at the minute. Uh, and once we have the local council nominations out of the way, we are going to publicise those individuals and say we're we're supporting this thirty. Uh, and I suspect, and that, and that includes some fairly high profile people in the in the freedom movement, um, but not that we're you know exclusively interested in that. We're interested in in, in everyone. Um, that thirty, I. I Phil will bring another 30 or 40 on board fairly quickly and we then start to get a bit of momentum. I mean, the yeah. difference with the parliamentary elections is obviously is they cost money. You've got a, you know, you've got a £500 deposit uh, and you've got leafleting costs of, of around about eight £900. They're, they're delivered for free by the Royal Mail, but you still have to produce the things and the typical constituency has, has 50,000 um, households in it. Um, so what we want to do is to set people running with crowdfunders now so they've got a year or whatever we don't when the election will be, but they've got some time to try and uh, get the resources in place to, to do it properly. Uh, council elections are by and large free. I mean, they're free to stand and the leaflet cost is is, uh, is a lot less because you know, it's a much smaller area. Uh, so yes, we will um, at some point in April, um, you know, uh, create a little bit of a fanfare, not quite as much as some of the political parties do, but a little bit of fanfare that this is the first 30 or so candidates we're supporting. Um, that they, they are spread around, uh, they're spread around the UK, so they're, they're not concentrated in particular areas. Uh, and there's some, you know, some very interesting candidates in that provisional group. Excellent. Um, and what about response from the media? Are you being given any opportunity to talk about what you are all doing? Are people uh, are people getting a bit of engagement locally on what what they're standing for and why they're standing for vote freedom? Nationally, with the alternative media, I um, and this is this perhaps is an example of it, but I, I, I'm finding it easier to get attention than I ever did when I was leading Freedom Alliance. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I spoke at the Oxford rally, for example, um, you know, back, in, back in February. I don't think I would have had that speaking slot as leader of a political party. Um, so the alternative media and the freedom movement as a whole are, seem happier to engage with me um, under, this, uh, under this model than they did under the party political model. Uh, in terms of the local papers, it, it varies dramatically. I mean, they will give you the bare minimum that they have to under, under the election rules. Uh, and that, that's the reason for doing elections, because, you know, I will get... 200 words in the Huddersfield Examiner and by and large, as long as I don't slander anybody, I can, you know, I can put whatever I want and they'll, they'll run with that. So that, that in itself is a powerful argument for standing in elections, the ability to, to get some local media coverage. Um, it, it varies around the country, but again, you know, the local media, a lot of it is owned by one company now. We won't mention which one, but um, so, you know, I mean, even when you're dealing with these reporters and these editors, you, you can see that they're all even using the same email template to reply back to you, can't they? Well, it's, just, it's just a party line from London. We've also got the embedded democracy reporters, of course, courtesy of the BBC and many of the... Yes in many of the so-called local newspapers, which uh, many people still don't realise. But yes, there's a certain amount of control, isn't there, existing down to local paper level. Um, a little story from me, when I stood as a parliamentary candidate, I was standing on an independent anti-corruption basis, 
and I got a phone call from BBC Radio Devon one day who said they'd like to interview me and I thought oh this is good and the gentleman turned up in due course with all of his uh, recording equipment and uh, I said to him how, how long have I got and he looked at me and he said six seconds and uh, uh, of course what can you do in six seconds you can say who you are and what you're standing for but I was not even allowed to say why I was standing I've never forgotten that one but I did take the opportunity to talk to him for about 20 minutes about why I was standing and hopefully some of that drifted back into the system. I stood in the, um, the Battle in Spain by-election back in the summer of 21 for Freedom Alliance, uh, stood canvassing, campaigning in, in, in Battley Town Square uh, one day and I had, I had national media lined up interviewing me one at a time, I, you know, the Telegraph, the BBC, Sky I think. Uh, Daily Mail, I can't even remember, but there was a queue forming to interview me one at a time. I thought, this is brilliant. We're going to make a breakthrough here. I'm going to be on all the national media. And, and they were letting me say what I wanted and noting it all down. Uh, and I thought, this is it. This is how you do it. We just have to use by-elections. Uh, and not one of those interviews was used or printed. Um, yeah. you know, they obviously all took it back and their editors said, forget it, we're not covering them. These tricks are are there and will be carried out. I, I was also prevented uh, from getting into hustings. This was a part as a parliamentary yeah, that's a candidate. Trick. That's a common trick now as well, yeah. yeah. Just invite uh, the main parties to the hustings, which, yes. you know, it's not, it's not a hustings, is it, if everybody's not invited? No, but uh, it just shows you how dirty the party political uh, system is. Just um, two final questions for you, a tough one for you, but if you had you have success and you've got candidates being elected. Um, they're, st they're independents and you're giving them this freedom to go in their own direction, to deal with problems as they see fit. I understand that. But what would, what would be your target area? What would, you, what would you like to see people focusing on because you think, yeah, I think if we deal with this, we would be making some progress. I think two areas really. I think one, we've got to attack these zero carbon plans. These 15 minute, 20 minute cities are coming everywhere. Um, every council has one of these plans. They're very glossy, they look nice and green. Um, but if you delve into the detail, it's all there. They're going to stop, stop waste collection. They're going to prioritise traffic lights for electric vehicles. They're going to close off large sections of towns. So what's happening in Oxford and Canterbury? And this, this has been implemented by local councils. This is not a Westminster thing. They've bypassed Westminster uh, and they're doing it through the councils. And that, that's where, where, where we've got to get people on board and kick back against that. Uh, and I, I think we're, you know, it's an open goal. We're pushing, as a, you know, pushing an open door here because the population, are, you know, when you discuss this with them, they're not, they're not up for this at all. They're not up for being fined for traveling to the next village or the next suburb. Um, and so I, I think it's absolutely essential we get people into councils and, and prevent that in the first instance. I mean, this is a lot of this is resistance and, um, you know, we're not even creating the new world that we want to see yet. We're just stopping them implementing their, their control mechanism. Uh, so for that, that for me, the, you know, the whole fake climate, climate alarmism and the, um, the 15 minute city control mechanisms that come on the back of it have to be resisted and can be very effectively resisted if we get people into these councils. Um, I think, you know, just, just, push back against whatever tyranny that comes next as well. The, you know, the COVID agenda, again, was pushed heavily by councils. It was the lines on the pavement, and, you know, the COVID marshals, all the rest of it. Again, it was councils that were doing it. It was, wasn't Westminster. Uh, and, you know, whatever they come with next, you can, you can push back against that. I mean, I just, I went to hand in election forms in, in Barnsley Council the other day. The yeah, election service is very helpful, nice, pleasant people. But the, the long corridor to, to their office, um, was essentially full of um, these big framed photos of people in Barnsley wearing masks during COVID in 2020, 2021. Um, you know, so it's maybe a small little thing, but you can you can bring a resolution to say, get those pictures down. That's that's the wrong image. That's not what we're doing. Um, so yeah, to, to push back against the 15 minute cities um, and to um, prevent and disrupt um, whatever comes next um, in terms of, of, of their agenda. I find your comment very interesting because we, we've, we've been showing clips of people going into their local councils and challenging them on the subject of the 15-minute cities, ultimately Agenda 2030, etc. Mm. And, and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, brilliant, because we've got people who are being active and they're doing it in a, 
uh, a very measured way, which is the right way because that has the biggest effect. But I just found it fascinating that out of all the subjects that you think people might get really fired up about, um, it seems to be this 15 minute city is one that, that it, people are waking up to it and they're responding to it. So um, it seems you've, you've hit the right spot on that one. Entirely, and I, you know, I think it's easy territory for this. This is not like you know the, the, we were hardened fighting the vaccines, and you know, ninety percent of the population were ever in favour of the vaccines. This is this this one is different. Ninety ninety percent of the population are against this stuff, and you know, it is difficult because they 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 presenting it as you know this uh, this utopia they're going to bring in. I mean, I, I'm a cyclist. I'd love there to be more cycle lanes. Yeah, I'm campaigning against cycle lanes um, because it's part of the wider agenda. It's, so you know, it, it is quite difficult to to. to you, know, you have to bill it as dystopia, not utopia. But they, they are providing the evidence. If you descend it, certainly the Kirklees plan, which um, I don't think is one of the most tyrannical out there by any stretch of the imagination. If you look at you look at the detail; it's all there. Um, you know, they, they are going to uh, restrict private car usage as the, you know, as the first thing. I think I personally think they'll restrict cycle usage eventually because yeah. fifteen minutes on a bike you can get quite a distance, and they won't they won't like that even. And there was there was a proposal last summer to bring in. Um, Registration plates for for cycles wasn't there, which was kicked back fairly quickly. But it's obviously it's obviously there. You know, once they've dealt with cars, they'll come for bikes next. What a terrible world we live in, Jonathan. Yeah. You, you've you've been really excellent. You've given us um, a lot about uh, what you're doing. Uh, last comment for you: What what would you like to say to the audience? Why should they just? Why should they uh, put themselves forward, get involved, and and also uh, tell us where people should go to see the website. The website's easy. That's votes-freedom.org. Um, um, become engaged because it is it is something you can do. It is one of the avenues open to us. Uh, and we need thousands of people. I mean, there's 3,000 elections this time. That's you, you could, this, this is not going to be you know, done by you know, one saviour running a political party. Uh, it's We need people across the country coming forward and standing in their localities, in, in their hundreds and in their thousands. Uh, and you know, when it comes to a general election, we'll need six hundred candidates, and we need campaign teams behind each of those. Um, so we need we need to build a mass movement here. We need to build it pretty quickly. Uh, the numbers are there. We know the numbers that went on the marches in London. That you know, the people are there. Just you know, we've all got objections to politics, and you know, having been involved in it for three years, I've got stronger objections than most probably. Um, but it's there. We can use it, and it is an avenue. So please, please help us do that. Jonathan, I'm going to say thank you very much for talking to me. It's been extremely interesting. And I'm going to wish you and your candidates the very best in the up and coming election. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brian. And thanks for having me on. Yeah. A pleasure. Thank you.